sometimes face-to-face or email or cell phones. And if you've lived a little bit, you realize that communication is, is, is tough. Um, most of you guys know, I recently, uh, my wife and I had a daughter, and uh, she's two months old. And I find myself trying to communicate with her. Um, I ask her questions all the time. Are you okay? Are you hungry? Are you, are you sleepy? And I, I'm asking her that, and I realize communication is strange because I'm not really going to get a response. Or if I am, it's not going to be words, maybe tears of some sort. And you see, communication is, is really the only way that we have to, to ensure that relationships go further. That really is the way that, that everything's been wired together. How God made the word world, we would have to communicate with one another. The skit that you just saw, the skit that you just saw shows really what it's like when we try to communicate with God sometimes. It's hard enough when we see people. And if you've ever experienced it like me, you say something and you see their face and you think, okay, what I said, I don't think they really heard what I meant. And you have to just go back and forth trying to re-communicate what you've already communicated. And it's just this tough process. So it's hard enough when we're with people face to face. And then we find as we commit our lives to Christ, and you make him boss of your life, you, you find out that we need to communicate with, with God. And that's called prayer. And then you get into a different set of struggles. Okay, so now I'm communicating with someone I, I can't see. And he audibly doesn't, doesn't talk back. And so you just feel this tension. I, I feel this tension a lot. Well, God, I, I'm supposed to pray to you, but, but I'm not really sure how to do it, what to say. Have you ever wondered, are you supposed to use some sort of like God vocabulary? Like only certain words that you use when you pray. I don't know about me, but sometimes I'm like, well, God, I, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to say to you. Am I supposed to uh, be real long in my prayers? Am I supposed to say just simple sentences? And I just find myself just being confused. You guys ever feel like that? Well, when we come into the scriptures, we find that, that prayer is actually something that Jesus addressed. His disciples sensed the same struggle. They wanted to know, how, how do we communicate with, with God? They had a lot of different examples of their day. And so Jesus felt this detention. And he, he directed us in his word of what's commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. Another title I have for this is, it's really kind of the disciples' prayer. Because it, it was for them. The Lord gave it for them so they would know what it's like to pray. If you have your listening guide, uh, there's a few points that I'd like to go over as, as Jesus addressed this issue of prayer in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew. Um, there really is purpose to prayer. It's not a bunch of words that, that mean nada, that means nothing. There really is a purpose. The first purpose, as you can see on your listening outline, is prayer is not a religious ritual or production. Matthew uh, 6 6 says, But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. The time of Jesus, there was a lot of religious leaders that were basically trying to, to pray in public so everyone would see how wonderfully they prayed. The word there says, um, oh, I, I read the wrong verse. I'm sorry. 
I'm supposed to read Matthew 6.5. Let me go back there. Is that the right one? Sorry, guys. Okay. Matthew 6.5 says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. The, the word there, hypocrites, re- refers to stage performer. Many of the religious leaders of the time of Jesus were, were being stage performers in their prayers. They would pray near religious churches and on the street corners just to be seen by men so men would think, well, they're, they're really spiritual. They, they must really know God. Jesus kind of takes that. It's, it's not a religious ritual or production. It really is something that's supposed to be done in secret. So, since it's not a religious ritual of production, the next point is, it is a personal conversation with God. Let me read that verse again. When you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So the disciples are seeing all these different people that are praying out loud. They're, they're being just these performers in their prayers, using special words, long prayers. And Jesus kind of comes to the scene and says, you know what, that prayer is not a performance. It's something that's supposed to be done in secret. Now, it doesn't mean that we're never supposed to pray with a group of people or with one another. It really means that we're not supposed to pray just so people can see that we know how to pray. See, God is shifting the focus from it being on man to, to, to God. It's not really about what each other think about the way that we pray, but really we pray to God the Father. You ever had a, uh, a conversation on the cell phone? In this day and age, everyone has a cell phone. Um, so conversations now we can, we can pretty much have any time, any place. Recently I was driving on the road and having a conversation with a friend. It's an important conversation. It's personal. And I'm getting to this point and I'm just kind of unloading what's going on in my life. And I ask a question, you know, do you know what I'm saying? And I tell him on the phone and it's silent. I'm thinking, he's really thinking through what, I, what I've asked him. I mean, he's, he's really thinking. And then the silence goes on. And then you get that little feeling like, I think the call's been dropped. You guys have experienced this. And then you're kind of wondering, okay, the call's been dropped. How much did they miss? Because I've just been talking to myself for a long time. So then you call them back and they're calling you back and the signals are just crossing. They're call waiting, you're call waiting them. And then finally you get them on and, so what part did you miss? And then you find out it was like three minutes ago. Well, you see, with God, it's not really a conversation like on a cell phone where, you know, calls get dropped all the time. It really is a conversation that, that God is listening all the time. And it's very personal and he doesn't forget when you pray to them. When you pray to him, he, he does not forget. So, Jesus is really painting this picture of it's not for men. It's not a production. It really is a personal conversation with God. The second thing that, or the third thing that that Jesus says, that it's not, it's, it's power is not found in our own efforts. And you see, since he's writing that this is not a stage performance, then the pressure is, is off of us when we pray. We don't have to worry about certain words that we use certain words that we shouldn't use. Should it be long? Should it be uh, short? But rather, it's, it's not about us and, and all the things that we have to think about when we pray. It really is pouring out our hearts to God 
in a personal conversation. And the power does not rest in us. And then you see the last point for the purpose of prayer is since it's not in our own power and it's not a production, it really is an expression of reliance. Um, Matthew 6, 8 says, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. That, that verse gives me a lot of confidence. One man wrote that prayer is not designed to inform God. And that really made a lot of sense to me because if you've ever come to, to pray and if God didn't really know what was going on in our lives, could you imagine if we had to fill him in on every detail? We wouldn't have time to work. We wouldn't have time to do anything because all we'd be doing is telling God, well, I woke up today, God, and I ate. And then I, no, God, God knows everything. And so we have a confidence. When we come to, to prayer, it's not about us informing him. He already knows. But instead, when we pray and we, we pour out our hearts, hearts to God, it's really us reminding ourselves that, that we're dependent on him. And he likes to hear what's going on. But it's not like we are informing him. Like we're just telling him just stuff he doesn't know. God sees everything. And that, that gives me a lot of confidence. So, basically, Jesus painted this picture to the disciples. This is what prayer isn't. And this, this is what prayer is. And he had basically taken all of their reference, all the religious leaders, everything they'd been doing, and they, he just stripped that away. And so I could imagine, if I was one of the disciples, I'd be standing there just, okay, you just took every concept of prayer and said that, that wasn't right. And so it was like Jesus knew that they had no clue now. They had no clue how to pray. They'd seen people do it, and Jesus says that's not right. Well, then if you continue in, in Matthew chapter 6, we come to, to what is known probably worldwide as the Lord's Prayer. And I've heard the Lord's Prayer for many years. And you know what? A lot of times I, I haven't really thought through, what does the Lord's Prayer really mean? You see, in the Lord's Prayer, we, we get certain guidelines. Um, it's not something that you have to pray word for word for it to be effective. Because remember, Jesus was, was basically saying that it's not about just going through the motions or performing. So he gives us certain guidelines. If you look in the, the uh, your listening guide further down, it says, when praying, we should, the first point is, recognize who God is. Matthew 6, 9. Pray along these lines. Our Father in heaven, we honor your holy name. Many aspects of this verse, this one verse, show who God is. There's three things. You can see that he's father. When you walk with God and you commit your life to Christ as boss, and he begins to call the shots in your life, then he really becomes your father. It's a personal relationship. And, and, and you're his, his child. And so when you pray, you recognize that he's your father. And that's why many prayers start with, dear father. It really shows the relationship. And that's very important. We can't forget that. Then it says, our father in heaven. In heaven really shows that not only is God personal like our Father, but, but He's in heaven. He, he has an authority. It really paints this picture that He's above all. He sees all that's going on. So he, He's personal, but he, but he also has authority. And then you see that He told us to pray, We honor Your holy name. Other versions it says, Hallowed be Thy name. That word really just means holy, that, that He's set apart. 
The reason we pray to God is because he is completely God and we are not. That's why we don't pray to, to one another. We pray to God because he is completely different. And this verse alone just paints this picture of, of God who is personal, who has authority, and really who who's set, set apart from us. It's really important to, to recognize that God is our audience when we pray. And we need to know, well, what, what is that audience? Who is that audience? Uh, when I was in fifth grade, I, I had a teacher that was um, also my soccer coach. He was kind of a personal guy, but kind of the teacher that you always wonder the whole time, does he like me? Does he not like me? You're not quite sure. Sometimes your grades, you really aren't sure when they give, give you that. But one time I was having this conversation with him, and he began asking me all these questions. And I started thinking, wow, he, he really cares. He's being personal with me. He's never done this. And he's asking me questions, and then I'm answering, and then he begins to start teasing me. And I'm thinking, whoa, this is kind of weird. My teacher's like, you know, teasing me, and I'm starting to feel really comfortable, and he's teasing me some more. And before I knew it, he was just teasing me, and my reaction, I just said, oh, shut up. That's a true story. And it was as if, like, I, I, I heard, have you ever said something? It's like you don't quite know you say it until you actually hear it come back to your eardrum. That was, that was one of those moments. I said, shut up. It came back to my eardrum. I said, oh, I just said, shut up to my teacher. And then I saw his face change. And then right then, I had that point, like, uh-oh. And, you know, he just, you, you've forgotten who, who I am. You know, you have that, that time when you're, like, backpilling. But you were really personal. You were teasing me, and you forgot who I am. And I just, I felt embarrassed. I felt sheepish. I was feeling really comfortable. I let my guard down. Shut up! Oh, whoops! And you know what? From that day, I started to realize that you can never forget the audience. That's the same when we pray. We're not praying to, to, to a buddy, to one of our girlfriends on the phone. It's, it's not the same thing. We are, we are praying to God. And when we pray, we need to recognize that, that there is a difference between the relationship we have with God than all of our other relationships. It's not something that we should be afraid of, like a, just really scared when we come to pray and tremble, but realize that, that he is God and that he has authority. And that's really why we pray to him. So once we recognize who God is and we really identify our audience and his character, second point there says we need to identify God's priorities. So once he's our audience, we have to ask the question, well, what does God stand for? So when we come to pray, we, we recognize who God is and then we, we identify God's priorities. Matthew 6.10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but when I come to God in prayer, it's like I have this agenda in my pocket. I'm always thinking through, okay, I've got to pull this out. I've got to read this list. God, I need help in this, this, this. Can you be with this, this, this? And I just go through this agenda. Well, Jesus paints this picture that it's really not about us. The first two lines of the prayer, it's about God. 
And so when you get into scriptures, and if you've been checking out the Bible and really trying to figure out what Christianity is about, there's a few passages that sum up what it is. And it really, God's priorities is, is to love Him, and, and then it's to love others, and then it's about me. I don't know about you, but my prayers are usually me, 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 amen. But you see, Jesus was very specific. You have to focus on God's priorities when you pray. If you don't know what those are, you, you find those in the Bible. Josh talked last week about um, the Scriptures and how when we read the Scriptures, we, we need to, to be obedient to them. Well, that's really how God communicates to us, through His Bible, through the Word. And then we communicate to Him through prayer. And it's this relationship back and forth. When we're not sure what the priorities are, you go to the Bible. Then you pray those, those priorities back to God. It's basically something like this. God, I know that, that it's not about me. And you've asked me to, to love you. And so I just want to let you know that I do. And I praise your name. It could be a simple, simple prayer just like that. I, I praise your name. I praise who you are. It's recognizing who God is and then it's identifying his priorities. The third thing that we need to do when we pray is we really need to depend on God. This is where I have a sigh of relief. Because the verse says, give us today our daily bread. Really, the prayer shifts here. When I read this one of the first times, it was kind of all this, okay, okay, our God in heaven, and okay, there's, there's about your kingdom, and then you oh, give me. Isn't that really attractive? Anything that results in us getting something, it's very attractive. Give us today our daily bread. And it's like, okay, God. You haven't forgotten about us. If you've been in a relationship with, with, with God for, for a long time, or even a short time, you realize that, that God's not going to rip you off. And this prayer reflects that. God is concerned with, with your needs. He's concerned with my needs. But it's interesting that he says, you know, give us today our daily bread. Not like an all-you-can-eat pasta bar or something. They didn't have pasta bars, so I don't know. All-you-can-eat manna. Okay? But it says, give us today our daily bread. It wasn't talking about, you know, give us enough today so we can store for tomorrow. And when you come to, to pray, it's, it's not about, God, give me everything I need so, so I'll be able to just make it. But it's, it's really, God, give me what I need for today. The necessities of life. It may not be just food. Daily bread is kind of like a, a general term for just the necessity. So when you pray, God is concerned with your needs. He's concerned with my needs, and we need to express them to God. And he, he's faithful. He answers those prayers. So depending on him for our daily provisions is, is vital. The next, what we, what we could see in Matthew 6, 12. This is focus on forgiveness. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The word debt there isn't referring to the, the money that we owe God or that people owe us. Debts is really talking about like a moral sin. And so when we pray, and as we pray continually throughout the day, we need to be mindful of, of the sin that we have in our life. Sin is really just ever missing the mark. And anytime I, I come to pray, I realize that there's an opportunity for me to confess my sin. You know, God, I, I messed up today and I did this. 
will you forgive me? But you see, this verse also is conditional. It shows that, and forgive us our debts, forgive us our sin, as we also have forgiven our debtors, people who have sinned against us. You ever wanted just to cut that verse, that second part out? And forgive us our debts. Erase the, the last part. That, that's, that's what I want to do. But you, but you find out that as we for, forgive people, that's directly connected to, to how God deals with us. You find that throughout Scripture. As we're merciful to others, God is really merciful to us. And He's more gracious than we ever can be. You see, if, you, if you've ever been in a relationship where you haven't forgiven somebody, or even if your relationship with God, you've not really been dealing with just your sin, it's, it's kind of like when you get plaque in your arteries. The blood flow slows down. And the relationships aren't functioning like they should. The blood can like trickle through, but it's not quite the flow that you need. That's kind of how it is. As we, as, but as we seek forgiveness from God and as we give forgiveness to other people, it's like that flow is restored and relationships are, are sweeter. Because forgiveness is, is the key for us to, to keep our relationship with God clear and for us to keep our relationship with one another clear. So anytime we pray, we need to be thinking through how we sinned against God, seek His forgiveness, and then how has somebody sinned against us that we need to forgive? The two go together. And then the last point, Matthew 6.13. Seek protection. It says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Life sometimes is just rough. Would you agree? There's lots of trials. There's just times when you're going through life and you're just like, God, I, I'm having a hard time. I don't know why this is happening to me, but I, I just don't have the strength to keep going. I've felt desperate like that before. Times where I'm just, I'm just, I'm low. I'm down. When you seek protection, what you're doing is, the word temptation there um, and lead us not into temptation. It really refers to trials of any kind. God does not tempt us. But basically, this prayer is a heartfelt prayer saying, God, I really don't want any more trials today. Life has is, is been tough. Can you, can you help me? And, and he responds to that. Circumstances, our sin, other people, all these things cause a lot of just grief in our life sometimes. The last part of this prayer recognizes the fact that when life beats us up, it's God who we need to turn to. And so we seek protection from, from ourselves, from the, the decisions that we make that are unwise. And we also seek protection from the evil one, Satan. And so when I, when I come to pray, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't usually say the Lord's Prayer word for word. But what I do is I, I really try to recognize the guidelines. And I, I have to focus on the words that I'm saying. You ever been praying before and you're not really focused and then you find yourself kind of saying the same stuff over again? God, be, be with me today. And, you know, today be with me. And, you know, be with me. And you're just kind of praying and then all of a sudden you've been wondering what you've been saying the last few minutes. 
we wouldn't, we wouldn't really have a conversation with somebody like that. Sometimes you may tune out and that may happen, but with God, he, he wants us to, to really engage with him. And it's different because we, we can't see him. And it's different because he may not directly say, I heard your prayer. But when you get in the Bible, you realize that he does. And as you learn more who God is, you realize that, that he is always listening. And he's always seeing what's going on. And so I encourage you, if, if you've prayed for a long time, and you, you really have a prayer life that, that's strong, continue in that. Because it really is the lifeblood of, of your relationship with God and with others. Or if you've struggled with prayer and you've just not really figured out how to incorporate it into your life, I encourage you this week to start with a simple prayer that, that mirrors the guidelines. Something like, God, I, I recognize who you are. You are, you are completely and utterly over all the earth. I thank you for that. And you, you show love to me and I thank you for that as well. God, I, I don't know if I'm going to have money to buy lunch today. But I know that you will provide something. And if not, I can get through it. And Lord, I'm struggling right now. Will you, will you help me? See, that's, that's a simple prayer that reflects those same priorities. So I encourage you, if it's a short prayer, if it takes 30 seconds, God still hears you. So I encourage you to do that. Let's pray. God, you are a good God who listens to us and hears us when we call. And sometimes, Lord, prayer is just confusing. We're not quite sure what we're supposed to say. Will you just accept our attempts at prayer and, and grow us in prayer that we may really know how to communicate with you as we, as we look into your word? Thank you for how your word does instruct us. And thank you, Lord, for always giving us the necessities we need for, for life. And we, can, we ask that you'll continue to do that. May we keep working so we may have the money to buy the things that we need and strengthen us. And Lord, I ask that you will just protect us from, from the trials of life and that our circumstances, our decisions, that we'll honor you in those and really protect us from, from evil because we need your help. We can't do it alone. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I don't know if any of you are magazine subscribers, but I, I am. I have two magazines that I subscribe to, and so I wanted to share with you a couple of these. The first one is Tennis Magazine, and I've been a subscriber faithfully for uh, off and on through uh, 15 years, you know. And uh, I played tennis in high school and a little in college, and, and um, you know, it's kind of got a little bit of everything in it. You've got your updates on player, play, you know, upcoming player information. You've got highlights on major events that were completed and the turnouts of all, you know, you've got interviews of players, all this stuff. But one of the things I've always liked about this was information on rackets and then also all the tips. There's a lot of helpful tennis tips on how you play, how you can improve your, your tennis game, how you can train and condition 
technique. You know, a lot of people think tennis is, you know, it's just about a, a ball, a fuzzy ball, and you just wail on this ball. And I play tennis with people, you know, friends of mine. Let's go play tennis, you know, okay. We go out there and the object is baseball for them. They're not, you know, there's really a different technique you use when you play tennis. And um, so, you know, I read this tennis magazine and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, they actually want to help me improve my game. They're looking out for me. They want me to, you know, become a better tennis player. But, you know, I really can't think of any major breakthroughs in my tennis career as a result of the tips and techniques that I've read in the tennis magazine. And I've read, you know, lots of these magazines. But I'm out there on the court, and I just, there's this, like, lapse of what I read and what I actually do. You know, I might be scrambling, and I'm like, I know there's a tip, you know, about approaching the net at this point, and something about my elbow, but I, you know, it's really hard for me to remember what I read, you know, in that tennis magazine. We just have a hard time remembering the things, remembering to do the things we read. Another one, this is my, probably my favorite right now, is called The Family Handyman. And this was referred to me by a friend of mine here at church, and, and he said, you know, this is a great, you know, this is a great magazine. And it really is a quality magazine. Um, I guess I've been going on close to two years now. And, uh, you know, the thing I like about The Family Handyman is that this is really instructional. Uh, this is a very um, instructive magazine. You know, this is this is how you build a deck. This is how you build a table. This is how you build a workbench with lights and elect. You know, all this. It's everything: plumbing, electricity, all this stuff that's really, really handy. And then also, there's this new tool section where they show you the new tools and they give you the previews. And man, this is just. And you know, I have. I start reading this, and I have every intention of becoming the family handyman. Like. But something happens between reading it and actually, you know, I lose motivation. Something happens, you know, between reading and executing the projects that I intend to to do. You know, I really want to be the family handyman, but very often I just forget what, you know, what I read. And so I remain the family handy boy. And and just as projects come up, I, I say, you know, what's the best way I can deal with this project? You know, and I go and I try to tackle it. And... You know, I'll stumble through things, a lot of phone calls to friends and, you know, people who really have probably taken this stuff a little more seriously and applied it, you know. But that's kind of the way it is. We're used to reading, you know, and reading and taking in information. We're, we just have a, a, a tendency to go after getting more information so we can store it in our head. We go to school, we grow up, we read books. We're told, you know, we need to read books. And, um, you know, if, if you're like me, I really banked on a short-term memory for tests. You know, I'd store all this information, I'd spit it out on a test, and I'd go home and I just didn't have a clue. You know, I couldn't explain what it was I just wrote down because, you know, I just stored in my short-term memory. We have this tendency just to just to take it in, but to, to not really make it a part of our lives and to do anything about it. Think about what you read. You know, what are you, what are you taking in each week? Magazine, newspaper. Think about your your, you know, main methods of, Retrieving information, whether it's magazines, newspaper, the internet. You know, do you, do you do anything with it? When you read Sports Illustrated, you know, if you read it and you're a big fan of sports, does it ignite your hope that you have a professional sports career? So after reading it, you go and start training, you know, or, or like fashion magazine, you know, if you're, if you're really interested in fashion, do you read it and then go out and do an extreme makeover on yourself or, you know, or whatever it is, you know, I know I get these emails, and they're called the secret stock alert. 
And so they send me the inside information on which stocks. And it's a spam email. I don't even know how they got my address. But so I get this email. It's called Secret Stock Alert. So I'm like the only one in the world that knows about this. And I have an opportunity to go and really call my broker and just go all in. But why is it that I don't? You know, why is it that we take information, we read it, but we fail to do something with it? This is a struggle. And then what about the Bible? You know, for me, you know, I, I'll read the Bible, and I really struggle in that very same way with making it more than just information and actually choosing to put that into practice in my life. And I think this is a question we need to ask. Does the, does the Bible bring about a response in us? Or is it, is it kind of along the lines of magazines and everything else we, we read or we hear? And why should it be treated any differently? What is, what's so unique about the Bible that makes it, that would, that would make it so special that we should actually do something with it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you've been coming around for a while to, to Church in the Valley, you probably noticed that we talk about the Bible. We talk about what the Bible has to say and we make a connection between the pages, what's written down in the pages of the Bible and how life really works. We really believe that God has given us instructions and guide, a guidebook for living life. And we want to take it seriously. And we want to encourage you to do the same. But maybe you're kind of in, in my boat where, you know, you read it, you hear it, you hear it, you come to church, but you don't quite know what to do with it. You don't understand what the, what the point of it is. Well, that's what we're talking about. This tension of just hearing and reading versus actually doing something with it. That's what we're looking at. Look at this. Uh, in, your, in your listening guide, you'll see this phrase, God's Word, the Bible is meant to be applied. That is the main point of the Scripture. It, it stands far above any other document or any other books you've read or magazines you've read. It's just very different. The whole intention is, is, is to put this actually into, into practice in our life. Look at this verse in James 1, 22 through 25. We're going to look at this passage briefly. It says, it says, Do not merely listen to the Word. The Word is referring to the Bible. So do not merely listen to the Word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It's a simple, it's a simple phrase. Just do what it says. So there are those who simply listen to God's Word and do nothing with it. They simply take it in, but they do nothing with it. This is our struggle, I think. Um, it's like if you've audited a course. I, um, I've been in, going to uh, seminary for like the last eight years, and one early on in my seminary uh, journey of, you know, of education, my wife audited a course with me, and she she thought it'd be fun to audit Greek with me. So she audited it. So it meant she could come and and learn about this stuff, but there was no requirement on her to do anything with it. And I got, I got, by about the middle when it started getting tough, that didn't make me feel real good about the fact that it didn't really matter if she, if, you know, if she didn't have to put it down on a test, you know. And so it was really probably more enjoyable experience for her because, you know, it's a lot easier to just, you know, to just, to learn something. And, you know, I, I appreciated her interest in, in my, uh, education. But, um, there's this tension because I wanted to be, I didn't want to have to, you know, I'm coming up on a Greek class again in, in the next semester, and it's like one of those things where I wish I could just take it in and get credit just for, you know, just for being there. But I, ha- I actually have to do something with it. But that's kind of like it, what it is when you, you now, you know, as I'm saying that, I'm thinking, man, my wife 
probably didn't appreciate that. So I, will you forgive me, honey, if I'm, I'm not saying anything about my wife's intention to not want to take a test. So, because um, it had nothing to do with that. But I figure I'd just clear that up, you know. Um, but, but really, this is the idea of when you, when you merely are a hearer, you know, there's really, uh, when there's no intention, then there's a problem there. So he says, be a doer of the world. word. It's a call to action, to move beyond the pages of the Bible, the things we hear at church, the things we read when we're maybe reading the Bible on our own, and actually respond to what God says in real life. And when we respond, it really speaks to what's in our heart. That's what we find out. What's really going on in our heart, we, we tend to live that stuff out. Look at verses 23 and 24. It says, anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So there's, there's again, the tension of just, just being a hearer of the Word or just taking it in, reading it, but not doing anything. It, there's this danger of forgetting to apply. It's like, so it's like a man who just forgets, you know, he goes up to a mirror, sees his face, but forgets what he looks like after he walks away. That's what it's like when we, when we don't respond to what God has to say. You know, we're used to looking in mirrors. We, we, we kind of rely on mirrors, I think, you know. But, but in the New Testament times, glass mirrors really, really weren't developed. What we have, you know, we get a nice glass mirror, we can see exactly, you know, we can see ourselves clearly. For them, they had like a polished brass and or, or a bronze mirror that, that they'd have to polish and they'd have to hold it to a certain angle and if the sun was reflecting right, they could see a, a reflection. But it wasn't like what we have today. It was a dim or distorted reflection. And so they had to really focus in on what they were looking at. But what he's saying is, even if you look very, very carefully, but don't apply, you know, it's like you can look really, really carefully at it, but if you do nothing with it, it's almost like you walk away and it's like you didn't stand there at all. You missed it. There's a, there's a real problem with this. But this is the struggle, I think, that we all face, is to do something with what God is saying to us. So if through my time with God, as I'm spending time with God, if He, through the Bible, sheds some light on an area in my life, and I, and I, I need to act on it, let's say it's my words. I realize um, He wants me to use my words to bless others and to, to be appropriate in this, in, you know, and to be an encouragement. And, you know, which is something God works on in me. Well, if I, if I learn that from what he's saying, but I fail to do something with it, then there's real consequences in my life. I find that I, 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 I hit walls or I fall into traps. You know, I step into major potholes and I experience really um, difficulty. His word, working like a mirror, it really reflects into our lives so that we can do something with it, so we can act on it as opposed to just living in deception. That's what the Scripture says. The person who just, there's this self-deception goes on when you fail to do something with the Scriptures. Because the Bible is very different. It has a different type of quality, an enduring quality about it. Hebrews 4.12 says this. It says, For the Word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. It wasn't until I was about 18 years old that I really began to allow God's Word to begin to cut into my life and to make, and to allowing Him to bring about change in the way that I did things. 
I took it in for years and years and years. I'd heard it for years. But there's this quality, there's this, God's Word is, is able to really just cut through all of our motives, cut through all of our, um, you know, our mindsets, our own pride. It just really deals with who we really are. And that, that's, God uses, uses it as a tool to grow us. He, he shows us the Word and begins to work at an area in our life. And what He wants us to do is take Him seriously so He can begin to bring about change in our hearts. But it would be like if I woke up in the morning, started shaving, phone rang, and I forget to wipe the shaving cream off my face. And I go to work. And, you know, it's kind of like how it is when we fail to put the Word of God into practice. He shows us a blind spot. He shows us, hey, there's shaving cream on your face. And I go to work anyway. You know, it's, that's kind of the idea here is we're ignoring what really is because God, through His Word, exposes who we really are. And that's what the Scripture says. Look at verse 25 of that James passage. It says, But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So there's you know, the person who forgets to apply, and then there's this person who looks intently, meaning he stoops down to get a better look. He really looks deeply into God's Word, and then he continues to do this careful... He turns his heart towards God's Word very carefully and consistently, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it. He chooses to put it into practice. And the Scripture says there's a blessing for it. There's a... Uh, one of the things you'll find if you start applying Scripture or if you find if you meet people who take God serious and begin to put Scripture into practice in their lives is there's some attitudes that they've chosen to build their lives upon. There's some attitudes that really support the reflex of applying Scripture. Um, and there's, there's really at least four key attitudes. And I wanted to show you, it's kind of like two sets of siblings, okay? Um, like two sets of brothers that are... Um, that are twins, but they're not identical twins, which there's actually such a thing. You know, I met some brothers that are twins, but these twins don't look all that much alike. So if you pull up the diagram, there's, there's this man. This is the man who applies the Bible. He stands on some attitudes, or he, he has built into his life, he's chosen to operate with some attitudes that really run contrary to what is our normal instinct in life. And these are some words that come out of Scripture. On the left, you'll see there's humility and teachability. These are like siblings. They work really closely together. They're attitudes that, that are really important to get into our lives. They're very similar. Humility is, is really a humbling ourselves or putting our, stooping ourselves down, pushing ourselves sometimes into submission and saying, I'm not, all the answers do not rest with me, you know. We're lowering ourselves is the idea when we're humbling ourselves. So, and then the other one that really works with it is teachability. It's really, this is a commitment to learn. To be a teachable person means you, you value other people and what they're experiencing. You value the truth that other people possess and so you ask questions. You're committed to, to learning through your life. You don't feel like, well, I've reached, you know, like I'm, 29. I've reached 29. So at this point on, I become a teacher. You know, really, the idea is no matter what responsibility God's given you, we need to be learners our whole life because there's people who've gone before us and who, 
who God has really done some things in that we constantly need to be staying teachable and remain close to and learn from. So there's this idea of humility and teachability that really work together that, that are core attitudes. And then the other two attitudes that this person who applies Scripture, they also fear God, they fear the Lord, and they trust Him. Fearing God, and we talk about this a lot, is, is to have an idea, to believe that God actually has said there's a certain way to live life, and if you do it, he's saying if you do it His way, life just goes much better. There's a lot of safety, protection, there's blessing as you do it His way. And it's kind of like um, guardrails going up a mountain. And so, to fear God is to stay on the road. It's to not launch off the guardrails. You know, you're grateful for the guardrails. Well, it's to do that, you know, to fear Him. To trust Him is, is to, when, when life gets tough and we want to pull out and do our own thing, is to actually say, oh, God, I know you are in this for my best interest. I know you, you're not going to rip me off. You have a track record of faithfulness. And so, this is a person who really understands that God in His ways is right and is willing to trust them. So these four attitudes are really critical in learning to apply Scripture because as we do these things, we begin to take God at His Word, we trust Him, and we're willing to be teachable. It's just a lot easier to apply the Bible. Because when we read the Bible, a lot of times, sometimes it just feels like we're getting beat up because it, you know, it, it starts cutting away, like it says. It cuts away at things that are very precious to us and we don't want anybody to, to mess with. And so, it takes these attitudes. We have to work these things into our life if we're actually going to go ahead and apply what God has to say. So, you start recognizing there's some, there's some attitudes. And if and maybe you would like to start applying God's Word, then those are some attitudes you'll want to pay attention to and try to begin to ask God to develop those things in your life. But he says, the person who continues to do the Word of God will find the blessings of God. So there are benefits from doing what God says. There are benefits. And there's, there's many. We could really talk all day about the blessings and the things that God says will come as a result of doing specific things. But just in a general sense, one benefit is to grow closer to God. To grow closer to Him. John 14.21 says, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. The idea of when we put things into practice, you have his commands and you obey them. It's the same picture as what James was saying. What God is saying is, as a person does this, I will, I will show, God's saying, I want to show more of myself to him, more of my ways. I want to give him clearer direction in life. It's kind of like if you played sports and you had a coach you have a bunch of coaches, but you have one who's a specialist. And so you think, you know what? I'm going to pay attention to what he says. You know, I will. He's, he has experience in this. He really knows what he's doing. So I'm going, to, I'm going to do what he says. And the more I do, the more he tells me about how to be successful in the sport. You know, he doesn't, if you've ever had a coach and he tells you, you know what? You need to, you know, you need, if you're playing baseball, you need to keep your head down, you know, and you need to keep your elbow up. You know, if you get up to bat and you're like, yeah, I know how to do it. I watch, you know, Barry Bonds and so I have my stance or, you know. He's not going to continue to give us information. It's like we kind of hit a, we stunt our ability to make progress in a, in that sport. Well, in the same way, God, He's the creator. He, he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's the one who is wise above all of us. He's made everything. He knows everything. 
He knows how our life works and what it will take in our life for us to find more and more progress, to really make progress in life. And so as we put things into practice, he shows us a little bit more of himself, about how life works and how about how we're wired and how you know the things in our lives can really make a difference. So, but it's very much like what Randy had been talking about. If you've been listening to the messages he's been sharing, there's a path to privilege. It's as we do something, as we handle our responsibilities, well, in this way, it's as we handle the Word of God correctly by applying it, He gives us a little bit more truth. And But if we, if we just, you know, only cut and paste or just, you know, only do things our way, then we really kind of hit a, we kind of stunt our growth. Look at Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8. You know, besides just growing closer to God, he, he rewards us by our deeds. Jeremiah 17, 5 through 8 says this. It says, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert, in a salt land where no one lives. So you get this idea of this, this, bush, this bush that's just disconnected from the things it really needs to thrive. And that, this is what it's like. This is a person who, and we're all, we all struggle with doing life our own way. But when we do life our own way, and we trust in ourselves, not applying what God has said to do in life, we find ourselves just really empty and lacking and exhausted we find our days just kind of grinding, you know, because the temptation, even with the Bible, is to approach the Bible for the sake of knowledge so that we can look better or we can argue better. You know, maybe we, you know, we, in schooling, you know, sometimes it's so, we take it in so we can appear to be smarter or so we can do better in dialogues. Well, you can use that same approach with the Bible and just take it in for the wrong reasons. And then, you know, you're kind of like this bush that's just you're shriveling up, and you're not you're not finding fulfillment and refreshment like you want. So that's one person. Another person is the man who trusts in the Lord. So, Jeremiah 17 continues and it says in verse seven, "But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord." Yeah, that's the idea of actually responding in action, doing something with it. Whose confidence is in Him, He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the streams. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. This is a picture. When you actually do what God said, it's like you're a tree whose roots are tapped into the source of life, of real life. So, in your life you find enjoyment. You find, you really arrive at success. doesn't mean that it's going to be trouble-free, but it means that we can really put our hope in God as we put His Word into practice. He'll bring us, He'll bring the right kinds of things into our life. That, that, and that's what we're really looking for. We want, we want to know that our lives are really refreshing. We we don't like being tired. We don't like being exhausted. But applying the Word of God actually brings refreshment and enjoyment to us. He concludes this by saying, "I, the Lord, in verse ten, search the heart and examine the mind." to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. There really is this, this idea, this, there's this connection between, and you'll find this, you, you, you'll find this as you live out the Bible, that there is a connection between what you do 
in the physical realm and what happens in the spiritual realm. Around, and as far as, you know, you can only see, we can only see what's here, but God, He's, He's outside of all the physical. He created all of this. And so something happens in, the, in another realm, in, in the spiritual realm, that God does that He brings about in our life. And there's a connection between the physical and the spiritual as we respond to what God has to say in His Word day in and day out. Because all that we do is, is, is laid bare. It's all uncovered. Nothing is hidden from God. And so he, he really brings blessing based on how we live our lives. And so if this is true, it's not, it's not enough to just read the Bible. It's not enough to just hear it. We, God really wants us to learn how to put it into practice. And before you open it up, it's, it's always good to begin to think through, okay, how, how, should I, how can I learn to apply the Bible? And so I want to just talk through just a few tips on how to apply the Scripture to your life. First off, if you're, if you're new to reading the Bible, start, with, start in the New Testament with the books John, Acts, and Romans. J-A-R, the first letters of those books. The Gospel of John, and then the very next book is Acts, and then Romans. If you read John, it tells you about the life of Jesus. It's his story written from the perspective of an eyewitness. So you'll, so you'll understand who Jesus is, what he did, how he laid his life down for, for all of us. And then from there, how the church began. Acts is a story. It's really it's like a historical book talking about how the church has grown and how, how it expanded as people shared the message of Jesus with other people. And we're really an extension of what happens in the book of Acts. We're, we're part of the church that Jesus Christ has set up. And then the third book there is Romans. It's really what we believe as Christians. So this core Christian teaching about God and about our condition as humans, what, what, what we really experience in life and how God through Jesus Christ has met our real needs. So we approach Scripture. If you, if you go and, and just think, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just, um, you know, I really want to apply the Bible and I just kind of go like this and I go, mm, I'm gonna apply this and it's talking about, you know, the son of so and so had so and so and son of, you know, we might, have a hard time figuring out how to apply it other than have more kids, you know. So we it's good to to have a strategic approach when you wanna when you wanna read through the scriptures. And if you need help with that, that's um then just let us know. We'd love to, people would love to get with you and just to share with you more about how to get to know what Jesus is or what God is saying to us through the Bible and where to start. But secondly, read enough to get the main point of the passage so that you understand what it's saying. Sometimes our temptation is to read it like you know, maybe like a magazine. I want to read the whole thing all at once so I can get, you know, see what I like and what I'm not interested in. Well, really, you, as you're reading maybe the book of John, read enough to where you get the main point of what he's trying to say and then stop and let God speak to you through the Bible. And ask, God, what are you trying to say to me through this specific set of verses? Maybe it's two or three verses. Maybe it's ten verses. You know, whatever that size. Sometimes it's a little longer. Maybe it's a whole chapter. Well, Read until you feel like you've got the main point of what he's trying to communicate to you. The third tip is just decide how you can apply the main point to one specific area in your life. And I think this is really the key, is to let God help, or ask God to really help you figure out, now what does this have to do with me? And what, and specifically what area in my life? Let's say the main point is not to worry. Um, you know, there's scripture that talks about do not worry. Instead to, maybe the reflex is, when something, when trouble comes, we worry. Our normal reflex is to worry and have stress and get anxious. Well, the scripture says instead, turn that into an opportunity to trust God through prayer. 
you know, and begin to talk to God in times when, when trouble comes. So maybe write down, yeah, when trouble comes at work, because I know it's coming, because I have trouble every, you know, whatever it is for, for us, we need to just really be specific about how we can apply this to our life. So maybe I'll ask myself, what triggers worry in my life? What, what causes me to be anxious? And I'm, God, I'm letting God speak to me through what the scriptures are saying. And then rather than worrying about it, I'm just going to choose to, to pray about things as they come up. And the fourth thing is just write down how you intend to apply the Bible. And again, be as specific as you can. This can serve as a reminder to you. If you put your reminders in key places, you know, if it is worry, maybe put it where your bills are, you know. Because for me, that's a source of stress sometimes when I'm like, oh, I don't want to do the bills because I don't know if I'm going to have enough to do what I want this month. And, you know, so maybe put my little scripture that talks about worry and just what I felt like God, the main point was, put that next to my bills. Or if it's, I'm just tired of, you know, maybe it's traffic and that just makes me anxious. Then I put it in my car so I can see it so I don't have road rage, you know, when I, when I drive to work or whatever it is, you know, getting up in the morning before you go to work, if you know that it's going to be a hard day and you put the, put the things that God is speaking to you in places that will remind you to do it when, when, when it comes up. Otherwise, it's really, really difficult to remember. We, we struggle, like the scripture says, with being forgetful when it comes to applying what, what God has to say. And the neat thing about all of this is that it really levels the playing ground. The fact that God is more after our obedience than making us smarter or building up our, our pride. He's really after our obedience. And so when you, that's, that's good to know because that means when you come to, a, to church, it's not about, you know, it's not like we have a big board that says, okay, who knows more knowledge about the Bible or about God? It really means you can come at any point and as God begins to show you things, you know, we all have the opportunity to just say, you know, I'm going to put this into practice. It just levels the playing ground because we all have that opportunity to obey Him. And then we can all experience the blessings of obedience in our lives. So it's really a neat thing when we, when we start putting God's Word into practice. So I, I just encourage you to do this, to try to, to take some of what God is saying in a specific area and, and work that into real life for you. Let's, let's close this in prayer. God, we, we confess that we are all, um, at least um, at times, we feel like we don't need any outside help. And um, God, I confess that that's me so much, Lord, that I just would love to do life my own way. And but God, time and time again, you've shown Good morning. Glad you're here this morning to worship with us. We're going to be looking over the next few weeks at uh, how Jesus brought to us the truth about God. That's one of the things he came to do. He revealed the truth about God as God in the person of Jesus Christ became a man and showed us what God is like, told us and showed us. I think it's important during the Christmas season, seems like Christmas season, the holiday season, gets earlier and earlier every year. I, you know, for us, it kind of starts, the Christmas season starts the day after Thanksgiving at 5 o'clock in the morning. My wife gets up and goes shopping, which is, uh, that sounds crazy to me. But she, she gets into it, so she goes. Um, me, myself, I, I have gone through different phases during the, the Christmas season. First phase, earlier in my life, I couldn't wait 
to get all of my stuff that I wanted. You make your list, you're very focused on getting your gifts, the things that you want, the things that are going to make your life meaningful for a couple of days. And, you know, it's all wrapped around you. And then as I matured a little bit, as I came to Christ, I committed my life to him, I realized, you know what, it's about not just the gifts, it's about worshiping the Lord for what he's done. So I, and actually from the point that I began to, it began to dawn on me that the world didn't revolve around me, and Christmas didn't either, I, I really maintained that focus during the holiday season, during Christmas season, to really worship God for what he's done. It's an amazing thing that the, the, the God who created the universe incarnated himself, became a man, and lived among us. It's a, it's a truly amazing thing. But I did, I did hit a couple of years where I got very cynical. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, you, you may have done this during the... I just started resenting all the commercialism, all the pressure, all the all the hype for Christmas. I just wanted to, to be quiet and worship God on my own. Even my favorite Christmas movie is White Christmas. And I love it when the general comes in at the end and everybody stands up and honors him. You know, a man who'd sacrificed himself for those people. I, I love that part, but even watching White Christmas during my cynical years could not bring me out of it. <laughs> even though, you know, really, it's not about snow, snow, snow. You know, it's not about all that. That has nothing to do with the meaning of Christmas. Nothing at all. But it's still, sometimes it just gets me into the mood, you know. Um, I don't know what your favorite Christmas movie is, but that, you know, really may talk about some of the themes of sacrifice and giving and living your life for others, which are very important. But if you've ever struggled in the middle of the Mary, you know what I mean. Trying to get going on what it takes. This message series, I want to look at some things about the identity of Christ. That should make all the difference in our lives every day. So what I'd like to do really is go back to our historical roots. The Christian faith is built on the historical roots of Judaism and the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written, uh, God wrote the Old Testament through different men. Uh, Moses wrote the first five books, then others wrote other books, different prophets wrote some things. And out of that, those roots come... Jesus Christ and our faith in Him and the, and the life that we live today. So what I would like to do is look at His identity through uh, the different roles that He wants to play in our lives as we discover them in the Old Testament and then as we see what they mean today, right here and now, in our life every day. One way that you can discover the role that the Lord Jesus wants to play in your life is to look at the three main kinds of leaders in the Old Testament. There were three three main leaders. There were prophets. A prophet is one who speaks God's message to the people. There were priests, another kind of leader, spiritual leader. A man and and a priest is a man who represents God's uh, the people before God. So he he's a man who goes before God on behalf of of the people. And then there were kings, who is basically a ruler of the nation. And it's interesting because each nation 
uh, or the nation would tend to take on and bear the consequences of the choices that the ruler make. They'd take on the characteristics of the ruler, and the king had a great amount of impact on, on his kingdom. And so what you find is that Jesus was all of these wrapped up into one person. So what we're going to do is we're going to look, we're going to look at how that is and what practically that means for our lives. Today, particularly, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is the ultimate prophet in our lives. One way that you can identify one, someone for certain is through their fingerprint. Everybody has a unique fingerprint. And so police detectives use fingerprints to, to identify someone uh, who, well, let's say if, if you have a suspect, you can identify that they were at the scene of the crime through their fingerprint, through finding their fingerprint at the scene of the crime. Well, in a positive way, God left some fingerprints of this Messiah. Throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament talked about the Messiah that was going to come to save the nation of Israel and to save the world. And so he left through the prophecies that you find in the Old Testament, he left some fingerprints. In fact, the prophets painted a portrait of the coming Savior. So what you can do is you can take the prophecies of the Old Testament and you can begin to paint a picture of the Messiah and you can look at the life of Jesus Christ and you can compare his life to that portrait and decide whether or not he was the Messiah. It's an amazing thing that you can do this. But look at Matthew 1. Matthew 1, 22-23 says, Now all this took place. It's talking about now all this that took place was Mary becoming pregnant and giving birth to a son whom they named Jesus. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, this is a quote from Isaiah 7, 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is, this is one of the fingerprints that God left for us, which translated means God with us. That is an incredible thing. God became a man. He is with us. He became one of us. The book of Matthew particularly was written with the specific purpose of connecting the Old Testament with Jesus Christ. And so he gives one of the fingerprints here of the Messiah by quoting one of the prophecies from the Messiah. Prophecy is a very important part of the Christmas story. And part of the one thing I like about the anticipation of waiting for Christmas morning is that 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 really is what Christmas is about. It was a promise that God made back in the garden of Eden when Adam decided to rebel against God and since all of us have made that same decision given our stamp of approval to it God made a promise right when that occurred in Genesis 3 that he would bring someone into the world who would save us from the predicament that we got ourselves into. So prophecy created a sense of anticipation, and that is actually that sense of anticipation that we feel for certain events, for important events in our lives, is, is a reflection of what Christmas is all about, because Jesus Christ became the fulfillment of these prophecies. Devout Jewish people, devout Hebrews, waited for a couple of millennia 
couple of thousand years for the appearing of the Messiah. I can't imagine that. The last time I can remember waiting for help was when I ran out of gas on the way to my my mother-in-law's house one Christmas season. And we left at 10 o'clock at night. I can't remember why we left so late, but we were driving and all of a sudden everybody was asleep. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning and I had miscalculated how much it would take, how much gas was in the tank and how how basically didn't make it to my mother-in-law's house. And as we were slowing down on the freeway, my daughter awoke <laughs> and said, Daddy, why are we slowing down? <laughs> and I said, well, hon, we ran out of gas. I am so sorry. So as we sat there waiting for the AAA guy to show up with the, the gas can, I thought, that, that just seemed like it took forever. I'd been on the same freeway. I was a little nervous because... Here I, I am, 2 o'clock in the morning, with my family on the side of the road. You know, who knows? I have no weapon. You know, I have no way of protecting myself. And I'm a little there. And so all these thoughts are going through your head. I had actually been on that freeway so and uh, earlier on another trip and saw a person at around 2 o'clock. I was driving at the same time. I don't know why that is. Why do I do this to myself? But anyway, driving, and he lost control. I think he'd been coming home from a bar, lost control, kind of was going all over the freeway. And finally just slammed into the middle of the, the, the guardrail between the two sides of the freeway. And so I called 911 and they came to help him and all that. But, um, so this is going through my mind. I'm watching the cars go by and I'm waiting for help. And I was very grateful when it arrived. That's, that's a part of the Christmas. Thousands of years, the Jewish people anticipated the coming of the Messiah. I mean, that is a very poor reflection of this anticipation. I mean, we wait for gifts that are for ourselves on Christmas. The kids get all excited about that, and that's fun. But this is something we need. Prophecy created a sense of anticipation. This is why we sing in the first Noel, the Christmas carol, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That, that's, that's a big part of Christmas. In fact, it's interesting, some people have claimed, or some people think, well, yeah, I know Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, but he probably used the Old Testament as sort of a playbook, and he just arranged his life, he maneuvered things in his life in order to live those things out. I, I actually wondered that at some point in my, my younger years. Maybe that could happen, and, and, and some people really try to make a case that way. But it's interesting. For instance, one of the prophecies that I have listed in the outline there is Daniel 9, 24 through 26. It gives, it gives a sense of the, the, the breadth of this accomplishment that God has, has accomplished in the birth of the Messiah. It's a prophecy about the time in history when the Messiah would be born. And there was to be a certain length of time between uh, when King Artaxerxes won. You probably don't know who that is. I'm not sure who it is either. I just know the name. King Artaxerxes won. He issued a decree for the Jewish people to go from Persia to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The Messiah was to be born a specific period of time after that event, after that decree. Jesus Christ was born at that exact moment in history. 
That's not something that you can pull off. I have known no other human being who can pull off the timing of their birth. You really can't do it. Can't, Can't do that. It would be impossible for him to have orchestrated the fulfillment of these prophecies. And in that Daniel prophecy, you get a sense that was hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. You, you get a sense of the anticipation that was involved in looking forward to the Messiah that was coming. Prophecy also provides a stamp of authenticity to Jesus Christ's identity. Matthew 5, I mean Micah 5, too, excuse me, says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is a prophecy that says he was going to be born in Bethlehem. It's amazing that God was able to pull that off because they didn't live in Bethlehem, but the Roman government did a census, and all the people had to return to their hometown to participate in the census. So... While they were in Bethlehem, Jesus was born to fulfill this prophecy. An amazing thing. This is one of the details that were spelled out in the prophecies. In fact, there are over four dozen prophecies with around 300 different details that were wrapped up in this portrait of the Messiah that had to do with the birth, the life, and the death of the Messiah. Jesus Christ fulfilled every one of those. And it's interesting because the chances of, of a person fulfilling just one, one or just eight of those prophecies, the chance that one guy could fulfill eight of those prophecies is one in 100 million billion. Okay, that, that number doesn't mean a lot to me. But I, but I read an illustration and this guy said that if you took, a, you took silver dollars and you covered the state of Texas with silver dollars, 100 million billion silver dollars, you cover the state of Texas with those silver dollars, it would be covered two feet deep with silver dollars. You mark one of the silver dollars, you throw it in the heap, you mix it up, you blindfold a person, and they're walking through the state of Texas. They're going to take their chance and try to find the one silver dollar that's marked, the chances that they would reach down and pick up that one dollar are the same as if one person were to fulfill just eight of those prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus Christ is the only person in history that fulfilled every one of the prophecies that had to do with the past. And so you can check it out. The odds would say it's impossible. But this is, this is a, a way that you can check out the, the veracity of, the, of, of Jesus' identity, who he claimed to be. Prophecy also foretells of a prophet like us. So the Old Testament tells us that a prophet's going to come. Carl made reference to it in his reading, Deuteronomy 18.15. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. This prophecy was recorded 1,400 years before Jesus' birth, and it points out that the Messiah would be a prophet who would speak the words of God, and he would be like Moses. He would be a man. So this prophet, the one prophet, would be a man, like a person like you and I, 
who would speak the words of God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now I'd like to look at some practical implications because Jesus spoke the words of God and words of God and more. Jesus brought God's word to life. That's exactly what he did. Look at John 1. John 1, 1 and 14. It says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is John's way of talking about Jesus Christ. The word is Jesus Christ. You find out later in the chapter. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. The, the one and only can also be translated the only begotten. So the one and only, the only begotten. The idea is this is God who's been born. The only one. He's very unique. God's son. Uniquely God's son. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. God meant for Jesus' life to be an audio-visual of the truth about God. That's what he's all about. He's a prophet who lived his message and spoke his message to you and I. What this does is this makes God very real. You can check out the veracity of the prophecies if you want. You, you can look into them. You can compare them. I read a book this week about a Jewish man who did extensive research on the prophecies of Christ. He wasn't, wasn't a believer in Christ, but God worked in his heart, stirred his curiosity, and he began to dig into the prophecy from a very skeptical, cynical viewpoint. And over time, as he checked out the prophecies, he began to see the portrait of the Messiah, and he committed his life to Christ. Now he pastors a congregation in, uh, I think it's over in Sherman Oaks area, or over in, on that side of town. You can check out the veracity of, of the prophecies or not. You, you, you may or may not need to, because Jesus brings, God, brings God, God's word to life right here and now, and he can speak to you personally. With whatever you're dealing with, if you wonder whether or not he exists, or if you, you, you wonder if he really is, he, he did exist at one point, you may wonder if he is who he said he is. He can, he can convince you. He can speak to you personally. And depending on where you're coming from, you may need to check out some of the facts about him. There's some good books to do that with. But he can also, and you will also need a direct word from him, from him and he can give it to you. He is not locked out of our world, but God is involved in our world, and he wants to be involved in your life and my life right here and now through his spirit. God's spoken to me several times. He is ready to speak to you right now. He speaks to me personally every day. I, what I do is I catch myself. I have a decision I'm trying to make, and I'm thinking it through, or I, I have a responsibility that I'm trying to fulfill, and I'm you know, bearing the weight of the responsibility and I'm wondering if I'm going to be able to pull this thing off and I catch myself relying on me and not asking God to give me what I need to help me pull it off. That's what it means to walk with Him and God's trying to develop our faith and, and grow us in this. And so I catch myself and then I realize, oh yeah, I can ask God. God, would you help me with this decision? I did that before I married Cindy. You know, I mean, that's I, I wanted to marry her. I was in love with her. 
But I needed a word from God. I wanted him to give me, and he gave me a specific word. I'm going on a trip uh, next Monday, a week from Monday, to Central Asia. I didn't just want to get on the plane. It's kind of a dangerous part of the world. I wasn't just going to get on a plane and haul off and go visit my friends in Central Asia. I wanted to know if God is in this. I wanted a word from him, and he gave me a word. I, I got some... And we'll find out if he keeps giving me the word as I step onto the plane <laughs> to head back there. But you, you can ask God for direction, and he will give you direction. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I imagine you've got some things on your mind. Maybe you have a decision to make that's weighing on you heavily. Maybe, maybe you're in the middle of a relationship that's frustrating, it's hard, there's been some conflict. You need some direction. God, how do I get how do I make progress on this? How do I make, get past myself in this? God will speak to you. You may need some strength to endure something. He can give you strength. He has the power to do that. He wants to be involved in your life right here and now. You may need perspective or encouragement. Sometimes I'll get up and I just don't want to get out of bed. You know, I'm just laying there thinking, oh, Lord, another day. Oh, great. You know, here I go. And I find that if I'll just ask God to encourage me and motivate me, he does it. Sometimes it's through the Word. Sometimes I get up in the morning, read the Bible, I'm praying, and wow, something just, a light comes on, his Word comes to life, and God speaks to me. Sometimes um, I'll, I'll be asking God for motivation, and it just, somehow I just get motivated. Or somebody calls me, gives me some encouragement, or... I see an example of someone in the body, someone in the church community that draws me toward that. And I get encouraged. I've gone to many meetings that I was leading thinking, wow, I don't know how this is going to go. And I just don't know. You know, I don't I don't really feel like we're making any progress at all in that meeting. God has used people to encourage me. And boom, he, he meets my need. He speaks to me personally. He wants to speak to you personally. He, he, now, you don't need to go overboard with this. And, and, and what I mean by overboard is you don't have to ask God to, to help you decide, for instance, what you're going to eat for lunch. As you're looking at the menu, God, what should I eat? You know, you might be stuck for a while. The waitress is going to want to have an answer or, or something. But... You know, you, you can hyper-spiritualize, you can over-spiritualize everything, like what color socks you're going to wear. Well, they, they should probably match. Those are the ones you should probably wear. I don't think God wants to get involved in those kinds of decisions necessarily. Um, it's important to rely on Him, but it's very, it's very, it's, it's very important to, to stay balanced, not get extreme, but at the same time, on the decisions, the things that are weighing on your heart, the decisions that you have to make, ask God to speak to you. He wants to. That's what it means that Jesus Christ is the prophet. That's the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. He's the one that God sent from among us to speak to our hearts in a deep, deep way. This makes God real. And he also came to clarify the truth about God. He, he clarifies the truth about God. Look at, look at John 1, 17 through 18. It says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. 
No one has seen God at any time. And here's that same phrase, the only begotten who is in the bosom of the Father, the one and only, the only Son of God. He has explained him. Jesus came to explain God to us. And so we had some misconceptions. As you get into the Old Testament and the way our hearts are wired, it's very easy to to misconceive what God is up to. So Jesus came to make it very clear what he's up to. One of the key things he said, our relationship to God is not about obeying God's law, but it's connected, it's connecting with God's love. That's one of the main things Jesus communicated. You get the idea as you get into the Old Testament, you read the laws, you think, wow, this is, this is the way I earn God's favor. I do what he said to do. And so, humanly speaking, you tend to think, well, if I hit about 70%, that's a C, that's probably passing. I'm probably good. I'll go on into heaven for eternity if I, if I hit that grade. But really, you get into Scripture and you find out that that's not what it's all about. The law shows us that we fall short, that we've actually sinned against God, we've rebelled against Him, and we haven't measured up to His standard for us, and we needed a Savior. It's there to show us that we need God. We needed this Messiah. We needed the prophet to come to speak to our hearts and to help us come to know God and connect with His love. Jesus told three stories in Luke 15 about finding lost things. How, and the, the idea in the stories is that God is searching for his lost people because he made us and every one of us decided to go our own way and he allowed us to do that. When we decided to go our own way, we disconnected from a relationship with God and God pursues us. He wants to have a relationship with us, so he comes after us. That's what God was doing in Jesus Christ. Luke 19.10 says, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's tied to those stories in Luke 15. He came to find us so that we could have life, so that he could explain to us what life's all about. If you want to know what's important to God, check out what Jesus said. One of the ways you can do it is just read, read the Gospels and then read, you can also read the Epistles, but look at what he said and look at how he changes the focus from our effort to God's gift of salvation that he gives if we receive it and we accept it like uh, he, he meant to give it. You also find out it's really not about rules. It's about a relationship with God, walking with God, knowing him. If you have the wrong understanding about God, you might think he's primarily concerned about law enforcement. But you find out that, like I said before, the law is just like an x-ray, just to show us what's in our hearts so we know we need him. You know, even Santa is very works-oriented. He's pretty law-oriented, law isn't he? If you're naughty, you get a lump of coal. If you're nice, you get good gifts, good stuff. But God's not that way. That, that makes sense to us. If I'm good, I get blessing. If I'm bad, you know. And that works out in life to a certain degree. But salvation is a gift from God that we accept. Jesus Christ, through him, grace and truth were realized. As the ultimate prophet, Jesus showed us the truth about God. He showed us this. He 
he explained that God loves you and I with an unfailing love. He never gives up on us. And even though we've fallen short and broken his law, he's made a way to pay the penalty for that, for that offense. The right response to God's prophet is to listen to him. Acts 3.22 is a quote of that verse in Deuteronomy 18 that I quoted before. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. That's what you do when you hear a word from God is you listen. It's interesting. The Greek word, the New Testament was written in Greek. And sometimes it's helpful to dig into the Greek meanings because there's a lot more meaning uh, behind the Greek language. Sometimes one word in the Greek language than one word in the English language. But. The Greek word for obey is hupa kuo. It's interesting. It's a combination of words. Hupo means under. Akuo means to listen. So you listen under. If you obey, you put yourself under the teaching of the prophet, the word of the prophet, God's word, and you do it. You follow through with it. That's the right response to a prophet. Akuo is the word like acoustics, you know, the hearing. So to listen under is what it means to obey. That's what you do with a prophet. When you hear a word from God, you follow through on it. As we wrap up the message this morning, I'd like to ask you to consider and to pray about how you're going to apply it. This week, as you head out, ask God to speak to you personally and show you that he's real. If you haven't, if you haven't yet committed your life to Christ, you can ask God to show you. Step into your world and make sense of the truth that you're learning to show you that he is real. If you already know him, ask the Lord to help you know him better so you don't have a misconception about God. That's why Jesus came. He came to give us the right picture of God that makes every difference in our everyday life. If you think that God is arbitrary, you're very nervous about the way you live because you're not quite sure how he's going to respond to your decisions and your words and your actions. If you think, if you know God is faithful and kind, then you can walk forward in peace. You can trust him. You can rest in him. So ask the Lord to help you know him better. But whatever God said to you this morning, maybe it's something else. Maybe there's another application you'd like to make. I'd encourage you to live it out this week to, to follow through and either ask God to show himself to you or ask him to help you get to know him better. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this truth that you show us in your word and how you speak to us as we get into it. And my prayer is, Father, as a congregation and as individuals, that you'd help us learn how to follow you, help us learn how to hear you and follow through on what you say. And God, help us not to be stubborn and hold back when you're giving direction. But help us to please you and find the freedom and blessing in that, God. I ask for this power and this help in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. Sometimes my prayer life has resembled uh, kind of a 911 call to God. Treating him like an operator. God, I really need your help. I really need your help right now. I'm in, I'm in a bad spot. 
When I was in college, I had um, some late night routines that seemed to be common for for us, me and my buddies in college, and it it revolved around food. Most of them going to eat food late at night, and so we had. Uh, just before 10, usually, someone would place an order to a pizza place called Valentino's Pizza, and we'd someone would go over and get pizzas. Five dollars for a, a good-sized pepperoni pizza. That's a great deal for when you're in college, you know, and and uh, that's a good deal anytime. I'll still buy a five-dollar pizza, but sometimes, you know, late at night, that's just what you're looking for. Sometimes it'd be 2 a.m. We'd head to Del Taco. Valentino's would close, I think, around 10 or so, and so... You know, if it was late, late night munchies, almost early morning breakfast time, then it would be head to Del Taco for some breakfast burritos. And um, this routine was pretty standard for, for me and my roommate and until up until finals week. Finals week came and the routine had to change for me. Um, I was struggling to survive my New Testament class because my study habits in college my freshman year weren't so good. And um, I never really developed study skills in high school, and so I got to college and realized that they actually want you to remember this stuff, and, and you have to test out of classes. And, and this was within my major, and so I really needed to, to get, um, in order to pass the class, I needed at least a C-, minus, otherwise I'd have to retake this. And um, so I was aiming for a C-, minus, to be real honest with you. I, uh, at that point, <laughs> that, was, that was about what I thought I could get, and so... Um, this was a really difficult professor, and I talked to some people who'd done well in his classes and learned that um, it's all about writing down everything he has to say. And he gives you these long lists of things. Write it down in the list. You know, write the title of what this is about and then the reasons that you need to to remember. And so, finals week came, and I had I did that. I got all prepared, and I realized. I needed a certain percentage on the final in order to achieve a C minus. I don't know if I should use the word achieve, but in order to be given a C minus. Um, so I spread out all these index cards throughout my dorm room on the floor, and um, I would just play like memory, you know. Where did Paul go at this point in his life? You know, flip it over and have the answer. And so I'm just memorizing all these cards, and I figure I just got to do I got to do pretty well on this test, and otherwise it's uh, you know, my parents wouldn't have been happy with me and it just wouldn't have been a good thing. Well, as I was studying, there came a point where I just realized I am exhausted. I cannot study any longer. And I cried out in desperation to God, uh, just please, God, help me. Help me. Bail me out of this situation. And a number of times in my life, this, you know, different situations, but same kind of prayer. I'm in crisis. I'm in a, I'm in a tough spot and I just need God to bail me out. Can you identify with that? Have you ever been there where you just, you hit a crisis? It's emergency status. Does your prayer life resemble more a, a 911 call? Or does it seem like um, it's more a constant series of conversations? Today we're going to be talking about the difference between the two. A 911 prayer life or a constant, continual prayer life. Because you see, crisis is, is, is what prompts our prayers usually. It's often what prompts our prayers. After the terrorist attacks on September 11th, a lot of people headed to the church. A lot of people headed to church and a lot of people headed to prayer. You know, they, they prayed to God and asked God for answers and clarity and what's going on. And it scared a lot of people because of fear and, and whatever. Well, people did studies to see if it would change. You know, there's this surge of people into the churches and a lot of people in, in ministry and who were looking at church life and 
we're trying to figure out, wow, is this going to change the face of America? More people going to church, spending time with God. But really, it was just the crisis prompted prayer, but not long after, things went back to normal for a lot of people. You know, God certainly was listening to those prayers at that time, but He's also looking to talk to us in the good times. He doesn't want to just only, you know, have a check-in in the, in the crisis moments, but He really wants to, us to be in relationship constant with Him. God wants us to pray continually. He's looking for a, us to pray continually. Conversation is, you know, we talk to God and we have a conversation with Him. We tell Him what's on our mind. We tell Him how we're feeling. We're telling Him how our day is going. The things that are weighing on our heart. Just like you would be talking to a friend or um, someone that's in your family. It's a, it's a conversation. And Alex last week talked about some of the, um, the purposes of prayer. But as we talk to God, it really grows our relationship with Him. It, we begin to develop a deeper relationship. Conversation is how we, we grow in relationship. As humans, we have a circle of people that we relate to on a regular basis. And our relationships are, are deepened as we talk more, as we spend more time with each other. If I were to fail to communicate deeply with my wife for a long, long period of time, then the marriage, our marriage suffers. And so I realize when the marriage is suffering, it's probably because I'm not spending quality time talking to, to my wife. The same goes for friendships and, and relationships in general. Babies, when they're born, babies fail to thrive if the parents don't pay attention to the baby. If the, if the baby is neglected and left to do their own thing all the time and there's no, you know, the baby's not, their senses aren't being developed and stimulated, then the baby's going to fail to thrive. Um, studies have been done on homeless individuals who are isolated. They don't have any relationships anymore. They've distanced themselves or whatever the reason is. They're on their own. Studies have shown that the life expectancy of a homeless person is much shorter because they're just out of relationship. They're not growing. They're not able to develop any further. Conversation is important to our growth. And so the same principle applies to God. Growth happens through our interaction. There's a verse... It's a long verse. Pray continually. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. This was one of the verses when I was a kid that in, in church, if you'd get rewarded for memorizing verses, this was one that you could always depend on because it was always easy to remember. Pray continually. It's a, simple, it's a simple verse to remember, but a very challenging and difficult thing in real life to live out, to have a continual conversation with God. Is there anything that we can really do continually without thinking? Breathing. We breathe. We don't really, most of us don't have to think about breathing unless we're underwater or something and we're need, you know, we, or, you know, I don't know what the situation would be, but you get the point. <laughs> we just, we just do it. From the time we're newborn babies, you get slapped on the rear and you start breathing and you, you begin to experience life, you know, and you breathe normally. And as humans, we develop and we could, we're, we're all kind of multitaskers. We breathe and do other things. We can breathe and work. We can breathe and talk. We can breathe and, you know, eat. And unless you're just really eating. But, but, but I'm losing my place here. <laughs> this verse is, is really saying that to be, that prayer can be, really, it should be something that's a reflex. Almost like we don't think about breathing, but it's something we, we begin to do is developing a constant habit in our life to where we begin to talk to God about our life 
Not just when crisis strikes, but intertwining it into our daily routine. That's what this verse is saying. I mean, certainly there's a time and a place for for planned out prayer. It's good to spend time on a regular basis with God to say, I'm going to set aside a time, set aside this time in the morning or in the evening and just talk to God, read through, read through the Bible and then begin to let God speak to you through the Bible and respond to Him to have a conversation. That's really important for your growth. But if that's the only time you talk to God or if it's only dinner time or, um, crisis time, then our relationship with Him is going to suffer. We're going to struggle. Because the truth is, God is always listening. All hours of the night and day, He's listening. There was a 17th century, there was a cook in the 17th century, and he was nicknamed Brother Lawrence, and he, he, he was kind of a legend in France. He was a kitchen worker who learned, he worked in a monastery, and he learned to live continually in God's presence. And in his, as the word got, as the word kind of got out about his lifestyle of continual prayer, people want to know what's your secret, what do you do? And so he, he had letters that he'd write to people and he told them, this is how I live my life. And so I wanted to just read you, like, up here, a, just a spot out of his letter. So it says, always I worshipped him. Talking about God. As often as I could, keeping my mind in his holy presence. When I wandered, I brought him back to my mind. This was a painful exercise, but I persisted, even through all difficulties. I just stop right there. Have you ever been praying, and then you're just your mind just somehow gets focused? This happens to me all the time. I'll be praying, and my mind kind of darts to the day, or I'm distracted by something, and all of a sudden I'm out planning my day out. I'm writing a schedule, and I'm, you know, oh, and I get, I have to force myself to get back into to focus. This is what he's saying: is I, it's a painful thing to do. But then he says, but never did I trouble or disquiet my mind when I wandered involuntarily. I made practicing his presence my business as much right through the day as at the appointed prayer times. At all times, every hour, every minute, even at the busiest times, I drove away from my mind everything capable of spoiling the sense of the presence of God. So this attitude of continual prayer, you know, he, he was able to actually live this out. It was a habit that he, that he developed in his life. This is what we need to face pressure. This is what we need to really face reality because there's all sorts of things that come at us that if we'll learn to talk to God about Him, it really will help us deal with life and the situations that come up in life. This, this, that verse, pray continually, 1 Thessalonians 5.17, was written to a group of people who were living in a very hostile environment towards Christianity. When when the missionary, when the person Paul came there to share the message of Jesus with them, it was a really hostile area. They didn't like what he was saying. They didn't agree with, you know, there were some that responded, but there were all these people that were really angry and they ran him out of town. They were so angry, they ran to the next town and tried to chase him out of that town as well. And it was just a real hostile environment. And so he's written a letter back to this group trying to encourage them because they're still living in a very hostile area towards Christianity and saying, you know, this is, this is important. You want to pray continually. You're constantly under pressure. And we can identify with that because we have jobs that really put pressure on us. They're monotonous. They're, they're, they're toilsome. We have bosses sometimes that we don't want to always do what they say. That puts pressure on us. We have things go wrong at home. We have cars break. You know, we have all this stuff. And so we have an opportunity to pray continually because we're constantly under pressure. 
There's really not any occasion in life that isn't good time to pray. It Not only should prayer just be continual, but there's really a quality about it. God wants it to be effective. Let's look at this next part. Continual God-centered prayer is effective. There's a way to focus our prayers. We want to we want to pray at all times. We want to really be in a prayerful, um, develop prayerful habits. But we also want them to be focused. Ephesians 6:18 says this. The beginning of the verse says the same thing. Pray at all times and on every occasion in the power of the Holy Spirit. Stay alert and be persistent in all your prayers for all Christians everywhere. So this verse has a condition. It's not just that our prayers should be constant, but they should also be prayed in cooperation with what God wants. In cooperation with God's Spirit. It says, in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're supposed to line ourselves up with what, what God really wants. If, you, if you've come to the point to where you've committed your life to follow Christ, then God, the Bible says, has put His Spirit to live inside you. And so we're to... As we pray, we're to submit our will and say, God, I really want to line my life up with what you want. When we do that, we begin to cooperate with God. His Spirit begins to speak to us about life. He, His Spirit begins to bring things to mind that really weren't from ourselves. That really God begins to speak to us as we line our life and up with Him. But it's a tough thing. Just because God's Spirit lives inside a person who's committed their life to Christ doesn't mean that it's an easy thing to cooperate with God. There's still this internal struggle. The things that I really, um, you know, there's distractions, all sorts of things that, that make it difficult to cooperate with God. Cooperating is just not natural for us. Um, teaching my two sons to cooperate is a, is a challenging thing. You know, one, can't blame him, he's only two months old, so he's not there yet. But my three-year-old, you know, he does not want to cooperate. <laughs> you know, he gets it. He gets it. After, you know, consequences. But he doesn't want to cooperate initially. You know, his knee jerk is, I want my own way. Yesterday um, was his birthday. He turned three. And I had this idea for a game, kind of basing it off of an Easter egg hunt. The um, theme was a Buzz Lightyear birthday. And so um, I thought, like, a Buzz Lightyear hunt would be cool, you know. So... I'll round up all his Buzz Lightyears and and then go and hide them all over the house and let the kids go and search for them and, you know, make it really exciting for them. So I get six Buzz Lightyears. The problem is Gabe has, like, most of the Buzz Lightyears he's carrying around because he's attached to these little toys. And so I'm like, Gabe, I need to take these toys so I, we can do this game. <laughs> it's a no-go for him. No, no. And then I, you know, somebody else, I think my dad or somebody tried to work on him and Gabe just wasn't going to give up the toy, you know. And uh, he just didn't understand. He didn't understand what I was asking. I, I was trying, Gabe, you're going to get him back. I'll give him back to you. We're just going to play a game. He didn't want to cooperate. I took him in the bedroom. We talked more. So I just took the toys and then I hid the things. But, but he didn't want to cooperate, you know. Cooperation is really key. <laughs> And when we pray, it's really like we, like my son, you know, we have some things on our, on our heart that we don't want to let go of. And sometimes those things block out God's ability to speak to us because we're just, we're so, you know, latched on to our own idea. And so, but in prayer it looks like this. There's two types of prayers really. There's a God-centered prayer and then there's a me-centered prayer. 
And the God-centered prayer is really when we're praying in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's His Spirit begins to bring some things to mind. First, it looks like this. It's based on His will. When we begin to pray prayers about what God is doing, what He's trying to accomplish in the world, what is what His plan is in the world. And versus prayers that are me-centered, my will. You know, I just demanding what I want to get out of life. You know, it's like my agenda taking my prayer hostage and taking control of my prayer. That that happens in prayer if we don't, if we allow it to. But God wants it to be focused on Him and the power of His Spirit. He wants to He wants us to focus on Him. So we focus. We can focus on His will in prayer. And it doesn't just have to be in a specific prayer time. This can be while I'm driving down the street. You know, God, what are you doing in the world? And, and redirecting my mind onto the things that are important to God. So it's also, it's focused on His ways. His ways. This is His approach for working out His plan in the world. The way He is accomplishing His plan. And so, again, asking the question, God, what, what are you doing through this situation? How does this line up with, with your, your will? Versus just my ways. You know, I've got my, my will, and then I have my way of going about doing it. It really looks different in prayer. We're, you know, a prayer that's me-centered, it's all about accomplishing my own goals, my way. Also, God-centered prayer, it looks, it's focused on His Word. This is God's, this is the Bible, God's specific instructions towards the different areas of life. There's all the different things that we deal with in life, relationships and decisions and all these different areas. Well, God has very specific things to say about all these areas. And so as we get into His Word, we spend time with Him. In prayer, it's an opportunity to, for God, through His Spirit, to bring that stuff to our mind and begin to speak to us and, and help us make the connection from what He says in His Word into our real life, into my life at work, into my life as I interact with my family. That's just how God works through. He communicates to us through the Bible. But it's very different than a prayer that's focused on my words. A me-centered prayer where I'm just saying, God, you know, and there's no real standard to it. It's just, I want these certain things and I really need you to, you know, to bail me out of this situation. A lot of times it's the crisis-focused prayer, or it's the, it's the crisis prayer. That it's very me-centered um, so, but when we ask God to, to, and His Holy Spirit to redirect us, then our prayers really begin to take meaning and they become much more effective. God-centered prayers are effective. Look at Romans 8.26. It says, And the Holy Spirit, He helps us in our distress. For we don't even know what we should pray for, nor how we should pray, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. The Holy Spirit, when we learn to cooperate with Him, he begins to give assistance to us in our prayer life. He begins to speak to us and really begins to um, redirect our lives in a way that we can't even understand, really. Um, you know, if it were up to me, I'd do my life a certain way, but God's trying to line my life up with something much bigger than myself. And the Holy Spirit assists us in our prayer lives to get us in line and on track with what He's really wanting to do in our lives so when is it a good time to pray? It's time to pray when I'm when I'm up. When there's joy in my life. 
when there's promotion, when I got promoted, when I get excited about something, when I when I scored a run playing softball, when I you know when when I'm anticipating something, when I made a big accomplishment, it's time to pray when when things are going well. Look at Psalm ninety two four. The psalmist says, You thrill me, Lord, with all you have done for me. I sing for joy because of what you've done. See, this was an occasion to pray and to thank God for the good that He'd brought into into his life. So all all the times when we're when we're up, when things are going well, it's an opportunity to say thank you, God. It's an opportunity to be grateful. Not just Thanksgiving Day, but really all year round as we just relate to God and we see the good in our lives. Have you ever came up with an idea and somebody stole it and then announced it? And they're like, Man, that was my idea. I deserve the credit for that. That's kind of the same thing. When when things are going good in our lives and we take the credit and we fail to give it to God and say thank you for it, we've just grabbed the glory, you know, and we haven't really given God um, the praise for what He's done. Because the Bible says in James 1, 16 and 17 that all the good comes from God. It says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like the shifting shadows. You see, every good thing that you're experiencing in your life, the joy, the accomplishments, the achievements, that all comes from the hand of God. And He's giving them to you as a blessing, but to reflect His goodness. It's it's for His glory. And so it's an opportunity for us to say thank you to God because He really loves us and has given us very freely and been very generous with us. But it's also a time to pray when I'm down. Not just when things are going great, but when I'm down. So crisis, it's not a bad thing to pray during crisis. It's actually a very, very good thing to pray in crisis. Because sometimes crisis cripples us and we don't know what to do. You know, when I'm sorrowful, when, I, when I've lost someone very close to me, when I'm angry or frustrated or just stressed out, you know, those are situations that could just choke the life out of us. And if we'll let them, we're just, we go down. We don't know what to do. But so those opportunities, again, are, not, are a time to to turn to God in prayer, who wants to walk with us through through the down times. Look at this verse in Psalm. He says, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I'm in distress. My sight is blurred because of my tears. My body and soul are withering away. You know, he's in a he's in a tough spot and he's, he's telling God. Rather than just telling a friend or just telling myself and rehearsing the, the issue in my mind, he's telling the one who really can walk with him through the situation. God really wants to, to to guide us through trouble and down times. So we want to we want to pray when when I'm up, when I'm down, and also when I'm in the daily grind. When I'm in the daily grind. Here's a verse, First Corinthians ten thirty one, kind of summarizes a lot of of the freedoms that we have in life and the issues we face in normal life, choices we make. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do it all for the glory of God. We have an opportunity to, to make choices where we have freedoms. And so, but with our freedoms, we want to make sure that our freedoms are for more than just ourselves. You know, but that we can, we can somehow invite God into the situation and bring Him glory through it. This is where we spend 95% of our lives in the daily grind, in the mundane tasks over and over and over. This is, and so praying continually in the daily grind is when we're washing dishes in the kitchen, 
when you're changing diapers, when you're relating to friends, when you're sitting around having lunch, when you're driving on the freeway, those things that you do over and over and over again are opportunities to talk to God and to see what what is, you know, going back to the God-centered prayer, what, what are you trying to accomplish through this situation? How are you trying to accomplish it? What do you have to say about this, God? And really, it's, a, it's just a time to really focus on God. And I think that's what Brother Lawrence had discovered, that there wasn't any situation in his life that that he needed to be doing on his own. He just found a way to invite God into every situation. But if we're not careful, we miss the moments in the mundane that God really wants to connect with us. When we learn to, to relate to God in the daily grind, it prepares us for the ups and the downtimes. As we, as we do it in the daily grind, when crisis hits, it will be a pattern in our, in our lives and then it, it will be very um, normal for us. So look for God in the daily grind. Ask Him, what are you doing through this situation? This really makes a difference because God doesn't want us to miss these, these moments. Yesterday, my son turned three. And I was rushing, all doing these different things all day. And, um, you know, at the party, I still felt very rushed because it was like, you got to make sure everything's going smoothly, run this game, do this, do this. And it's over, and I'm like, I realized, dude, this is my son's birthday, and I need to spend some time with him. And I didn't, I kept like, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. He's like, Dad, can we play with the car track? You know, can we, because he need me to build something. So finally I sat down and we played with this really cool track that he got. And, I mean, he's three, you know. That just blew by, too. It's amazing how fast it, it has gone. And if I don't watch it, opportunities to connect with him, you know, God's trying to get my attention through the mundane, day-to-day playing with my son. He's trying to get my attention. He wants me to, God wants to be involved in that. He's trying to teach me something through that. That's how I involve, that's how I can involve God and talk to him as I just look for what God's doing in, in the midst of these normal routines. So continual prayer, um, you know, it sounds like a real um, ethereal, heavenly thing. Pray continually, you know. Like I have to take on a different body to really pull this off. But really, I think it's a matter of our perspective. It really is a matter of what we really believe, how we really believe life works. When trouble comes up, do I really believe that God is there and He's walking, that He's He's the God that wants to walk me through the fires? If I do, then it's going to come out in my life. I'm going to pray. I'm going to spend time with Him. Do I believe that all the good that comes into my life is from His hand? If I do, then it's going to come up in praise. You know, this is really a matter of how we how we look at life. And so, we want to start where we're at, though, you know. Really try to ask God, okay, God, I really want to work to pray more often. I want to spend more time with you. And it doesn't have to be real prescriptive and doesn't you don't have to get down on your knees, but really just asking God to show you what he's doing through the situations you face in your life. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, for how you speak very clearly to us, God. And we ask you for the, the strength to live this principle out. Lord, we know that your ways are far, far different. Hi, Josephine. Put it here.
it's Hurricane Herman is about to arrive at any time now. Welcome, Matt, and Capitage. So, quickly, but not too quickly. All right? Oh, I'm sorry. It's so chilly in here. Sometimes it gets so cold, I can hardly stand it. Will you let me to turn the radiator up for you, Aunt Josephine? Oh, no. I never turn on the radiator. I'm afraid that it might explode. Oh, children, I must ask you not to use any of the doorknobs in the house. Just push on the wood of the door, and it'll open. Why? Well, I'm always afraid that the doorknobs will shatter into a million tiny pieces, and one of them will hit my eye. Delmo is not a word. <laughs> I can see that I'm going to have to teach her proper English. <laughs> Grammar is the greatest joy in life, don't you find? Oh, oh yeah. Well, that's I'm Cucumber soup. I never cook anything hot. I'm afraid that the stove will burst in flames. Where's your brother? Kitchen. <laughs> what are you doing? Napkins. Oh, napkins are here. Come away from the fridge. If it falls, it'll crush you flat. I don't really believe in accidents. I think fate's behind everything. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Fate's behind everything. I think so. Everything's predestined. We don't have any choice at all. No, I think we make our own decisions. I just think that fate sends us little signs, and it's how we read the signs that determines whether we're happy or not. A little signal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ironically, this is not far from the truth. Do you believe in fate? Stop falling into place. It's like, like it's fate. Oh, Lex, I thought she died. Well, apparently she has bigger plans for me. And besides, you must see it through. See what through? Your fate? What brought you here? You believe. The mountain is this. Agamemnon man does what he can. Until his destiny is revealed. Legible, legible. I can't believe I'm doing this. Yeah, please, please let fate take its proper course. Oh! That 
That was an accident. Write that down again, please. That was a sign. Fate's telling us to back off. And that sometimes, despite all your best choices and all your best intentions, fate wins anyway. We face many pressures in life. This clip just showed that we have a couple choices when we face problems. Um, do we just follow the signs, try to figure out how fate can help us through a specific problems, specific trouble? Do we just wait just for it to, to pass? Um, but we all have to deal with, with trouble and the pressures of life. And all of us have to. It, it comes. Um, interesting. Fate, this idea that it will just happen. See, all these people in the clips, most of them had smiles on their faces. When you're in problems and when you're facing trouble, fate isn't really what you're looking for. You're really looking for, for a way out. Uh, remember Y2K? Remember that? I mean, it was like the biggest thing. You know, every, it's like every conversation you wanted to kind of include it somehow. You know, it's like Y2K, you know, uh, it's just going to happen. And everyone's kind of just not quite sure what they're supposed to do. I mean, if we're relying on computers and somehow they don't work, what do we do? And, and you see the news talking about Y2K and they show people that are going to the hardware store and buying every water bottle that's ever existed and putting in their basement. And there's guys like me that kind of have a passive approach. I don't have a basement. So I'm, I'm you know what, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm not going to do what they do, but then I start getting anxious because I think, well, they're doing it. And if, what if I finally decide I need to do something about Y2K? I go to the store and there's nothing left. And you see this, this fear is, is real. And you know, December 31st came, 1999, 2000 came and it was, take your water back. But you see the, the news, they, they were pumping fear into us. Every conversation somehow revolved around, what are we going to do about Y2K? But you see, it's, it's not just the big things like, what if ha- happens if the computers blow up? But really, how do we handle just the pressures of everyday life? We see the Bible really addresses this issue um, because we're all going to face it. We're all going to face trouble and pressures. And we have a choice. Do we just trust in fate? To just somehow work things out? Or are there other answers? If you pull out your listening guide, we'll kind of discover what the Bible has to say about when trouble comes. But there are certain realities that all of us face in life just because we're here on earth. First thing on your, your outline, it says, we face trying circumstances on a regular basis. Job 14.1. It says, how frail is man, how few his days, how full of trouble. Pretty sobering. Nothing about the magnificence of what we can do or how we're going to do it, but really, we're frail. It kind of means that there's a limit to what we can do. There's only a certain amount of strength that we have as man, as humans. How few his days. We, we're not going to live forever. But then the last part is about how full of trouble. It's kind of like minimizing us and then maximizing the fact that we're going to face trouble. So it's, it's just a reality. And we're going to face trying circumstances on a regular basis. You see, trouble in itself isn't, isn't the only thing that, that really is hard. It's the fact that trouble causes anxiety. You see, trouble comes and 
situation unfolds and we've got to figure out what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to do it? Why is this problem happening to me? All these questions come up and we start to, to be anxious. You guys ever felt that? That anxiety before? If you haven't, you go shopping on Friday. There's a reason it's called Black Friday. When you want to see anxiety, Best Buy at 5 o'clock in the morning. You don't have the ticket for the laptop. That's $50. What are you going to do? How are you going to go on? But you find that, that it's the anxiety that really makes trouble hard. Because we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how we're supposed to move forward. But when we face trouble and the anxiety comes, we really have two ways of dealing with it. The first way is, is my way. I am in control of my own life. Matthew 6, 25-27 says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and he just basically tells them that all these minimum things that, that you worry about don't. And he went right to the core, food and clothing. I don't know about you, but if I don't have food and clothing, I'm, I'm pretty worried. So Jesus sets, sets this up. You, you don't worry about these small things. And then he asks the question at the end. If you do worry... Are you going to add a single hour to your life? But yet, what Jesus was doing is he was showing that if you're worried about the small things in life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, then you're really going to be worried about everything. Because if we're really worried about the minimum, then everything in life is going to shake us. But he tells his disciples, do not worry about these things. But But how? You just find that the disciples are probably thinking, wait a second, if I don't have food to eat for a whole day, I'm, I'm worried. Well, you see, there's another way besides my way. And that's God's way. It says, I surrender control to God through prayer. That's the way you surrender control. You, you come to God in prayer. Psalm 55, 22. It says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. When we decide that we're, we're no longer going to hang on to our fears and anxiety, we're really tapping into a higher power, and that's God. When we surrender that control and we, we come to God in prayer, we're basically saying, I, I cannot do this on my own. This pressure is too much for me to handle. I, I need your help. The word sustain in the verse where it says the Lord will sustain you, it really refers to not only will God take care of you, but also the burden. It doesn't say that the burden will be taken away. When you become a follower of Christ, it doesn't mean that problems are gone. It, it just rather means that there's a different way to handle them. And really, when the Lord sustains us, it's, it's like we, we're under pressure and He comes in, we won't be crushed by it. It won't smush us down. When we rely on God and surrender control through prayer, we're really going to be in a place where we're not crushed. 
a um, few years back, I, I was laid off of, of my job. And I was in the office, it was a Friday, and I got a call. Phone rang, picked it up, and it was the CEO of the company. So, you know, any day the CEO calls you on the phone, it's either going to be like a really good day or really bad. And I haven't really done anything spectacular, but I was always hoping that maybe, for some reason, there's hope. So he called and he says, Alex. I was like, well, he knows my name <laughs> and my number. Um, Alex, can you meet me in the conference room? Wow, it's a really good day. He wants to see me in person. So, needless to say, I was, I was a little worried. Wasn't quite sure what was going on. And he's in another separate building. So I have this long walk to his office, to the conference room, and I'm thinking, well, what could this be about? And I'm running every scenario. Have I been taking too many bathroom breaks? Have I not used the paper that I was supposed to, you know? And then I, I sit into the conference room, and there's like 15 other people. And we're all sitting in this circle, and there's this just nervous energy in the room. You ever walked in a room like this? Where it's like you kind of walk in, you're, it's like the saloon scene where everyone just turns and it's quiet. It was like that. I just walked in and I was like. <laughs> and I sat down and there was just this nervous energy. And he opens his mouth and he says, effectively, immediately, you're no longer employees of this company. Well, there was no doubt now. I knew what it was about. So I, I, I sat there and, you know, people handle news like that in various ways. There's one guy that was, was looking down. He wasn't making eye contact with anyone. He was kind of just shutting people out. There's other people that, you know, they just face being laid off and they're just talking about, well, I've, I've got another job here. You know, they've already got the plan laid out. And there's others that are trying to talk about, well, effective immediately? Does that mean, like, I have to leave now? Can I go back, get my stuff? Can I say goodbye? And seriously, we're, people are trying to analyze, well, like, immediately. Cause that... But, you know, I had a choice there, too. Because people at my work knew that I was a follower of Christ. They knew that, that he called the shots in my life. And so I, I had to decide, okay, how do I react to this? And you know what? I wasn't sure how I was going to react. And so I just had to pray. And it was in that conference room that I just said, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Will you, will you come through for me? And I remember thinking through how I was going to, you know, tell, tell my wife the problem. I don't have a job anymore. And all that that was going to mean for the rest of the plans. And you know what? That anxiety just was boiling within me. You know, when I surrendered control, I realized that I was, I was allowing God to be involved. And it was amazing at how that really did release the pressure off of me. And I really saw him come through. So we have a choice. Do we hold on to it? I have control. Or do we surrender to God through prayer? And that's really specifically how we do it. Uh, in Philippians, there's two verses that really describe what we should do when we face anxiety. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. There's certain things you could do if you've really committed your life to Christ as boss and you want to include him in the trials of life. There's a few steps. So when anxiety comes, I should, the first thing is turn to God in consistent prayer. 
Josh talked about the importance of praying continually last week. And that's really just making sure that God is involved in our daily lives. If you're anything like me, it's like when times are good, Josh talked about you know praying when you're up. I struggle with that. When, when everything's going good, it's kind of like, wow, you know, life's good, relationships are good, got money in the bank, got a car that works. It's kind of like when the car doesn't work and you've got to figure out how to get somewhere. God, I really need your help. But you see, when we pray consistently, God is involved in, in every part of our life. And so prayer is not just something that we cling to during trials, but rather it just flows into that as trials come. So we should be um, praying consistently. The second thing is make specific requests. God already knows the, the details of our problems, of our lives. But when you pinpoint your anxiety, what it does is it allows you to, to really see clearly what, what is it that's causing you to have trouble in this circumstance. When my um, company laid me off, you know what? I could have prayed, God, help me through this, and God would have listened. But when I said, God, help me through this, and I don't know how I'm going to make ends meet, specifically, I pinpointed, you know what? I'm nervous about how we're going to have money. And I prayed specifically. And that way, when those thoughts came up again, when I was just kind of clinging to the worry, how this was all going to work out, I remembered the prayer. You know, God, I've already asked you to be with me during this. And I know you will. So when you pinpoint your anxiety, it really helps you to see how that flows in there. And if God's already involved in the process, then we don't need to cling to it. We've already given it to him specifically. The third thing is be thankful. We want to jump right into the problems. And we want to just tell God, God, I don't know how to do this. I need your help. I feel like I'm going to get crushed. And all these questions come up. What should I do? How am I supposed to do it? Who can help me? But you know what? One thing that we have to consistently do when we pray, especially in times of problems and trouble and pressures, is we have to be thankful. What thankfulness does is it, it reminds us of the track record that God's had with us in the past. And it really honors Him. See, when I, when I experienced this problem in my life, I had seen how God had come through in the past. And I could pray specifically, you know, God, there was a time when I didn't have a job. I was right out of college and you gave me this job. Thank you for that. And so I, I thanked Him for how He had come through specifically. And that really helped me know that, you know, if he's come through for me in the past, he'll come through for me right now. And so thankfulness is so vital because it really reminds us that God has been with us and he's really done good things on our behalf. Believe it or not, prayer is, is not something that just floats up to God. And, you know, he may choose to, to listen or not. He, he's always listening. And we've been talking about the last few weeks. But there's also really specific rewards when you pray. God gives us specific rewards. You find that in Philippians 4, 7. It says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. First thing is, is when we pray during a difficult time, we get peace regardless of circumstances. Peace is, is pretty attractive to all of us, wouldn't you say? 
One of the things that, that just kind of makes me laugh is, is what people will do to find peace. Anybody ever done yoga in here? People really want to do yoga for peace. Seems like. I've never done it. But you know, something's funny. If you're folding your body in half, and then like wrapping it around your head, how does that give peace? You know what? It's kind of like, people say this is going to be in peace, I'm going to try it. Because it's yoga. And you know, you get peace from listening to a certain song. I just need that song to get me through this right now. It gives me peace. You listen to the waterfalls and the wind blowing through the grass. <laughs> I just made that up. People probably... <laughs> Sounded good. But you may not do that. There's not many waterfalls near here. But it's like we do anything to find this peace. But you know what? Real peace comes from God. And it's regardless of our circumstances. And this peace also, in the second point there, it says... Uh, it gives us clarity as we move forward in life. This clarity is because this peace surpasses our understanding. It's not a peace that we get from anything that we do. It's really a peace that we get from God. And it surpasses our understanding. It's, it's a different peace. It's not really a temporary peace. It's a peace knowing that God is going to come through. It's almost like you know the outcome even though you don't know specifically how it's going to happen. What we, what we fear a lot of times is, is the unknown. And as followers of Christ, we may not know specifically, but if God's going to come through, then we don't have to fear the unknown. And that's really what that is. It's just clarity as we move forward. Also, we get protection from anxiety during future troubles, future trials. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding, the verse says, will guard our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. The word guard there is really referring to like a castle wall. How it guards uh, people from coming in or a drawbridge. How it closes the entrance. When we get the peace of God, it's, it's kind of like this force field. It, it protects us from going down that path of anxiety. But doesn't it just start in the, the, the easy things? I mean, just the little things of life. You, you wake up in the morning... And you, you don't know what to wear. I'm serious about this. You get anxious about it, don't you? I do. Or then you put it on, and then you're leaving, and then you're low on gas. And you're like, well, gas prices are so just, you know, incredibly high now. How am I going to afford gas? And then you're in your car, and you're thinking, well, why do I pay really nice gas for this car that's not that great? I need a new car, but I can't afford a car. And you see, this stuff just trickles in. But you need, we, need, we need protection because we just we go to anxiety all the time. But when we surrender to God in prayer, it really is providing us with these protection because we have His peace. We know that He'll come through. The last few weeks we've been talking, uh, the message series has been on seeing life from a different angle, from a different perspective. Really, when you follow Christ and you begin to get into the Bible and apply it to your life and you begin to pray, you start realizing that there's just a different set of reflexes that you have when you follow Christ. All the things that, that you just kind of leave up there to fate, I don't know how it's going to happen, but the signs, I'll read those and somehow I'll know what to do. Well, when you follow Christ, you realize that He gives us direct instruction in His Word that really helps us in life. And in the midst of life, 
whether we're, we're doing great or we're struggling, when we come to Him in prayer, he, He's a part of it. And we just get a different an angle on things. We see things differently. If you've not committed your life to Christ, but seeing differently or seeing a different perspective on things is attracted to you, I encourage you to, to seek someone out that you know that is a follower of Christ that can help you learn what it means to really see life from a different angle. You could also write that on the blue card if you, if you just need help doing that. And if you've been walking with God for a little bit or a while, I encourage you to really try to check out prayer and reading your Bible. Because this is really what shifts our perspective. I encourage you this week, if um, you've never really spent time in prayer, take 30 seconds. We all have anxieties. Take an anxiety that you have and just ask God to help you with it. You know, we're approaching the season and you can already feel it. Just the Christmas season and we're going to be with family and there's going to be this meal to do and this place to go and you just find all this stuff starting to well up. That happens with me. The money that we're going to spend, what we need to do. But you know what? When we turn these things to God, we really get the right perspective. So I encourage you as we're approaching the season, really take the time to include God in, in the pressures of life. And you'll really see how that, that helps you come through. Let us pray. God, thank you for this morning and for how you listen to us at all times. And you really do want to help us through these.